Welcome to the Knock on Archery podcast, where we bring all archers and bow hunters together from all walks of life with the goal to educate, empower, and inspire you to be better both in the field and on the range. Hey, 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 everybody. Welcome back to another Knock on podcast. This podcast, I'm giving you an intro right now. Uh, this was a podcast across the pond, so there is a, a little bit of a lag. So uh, we're going to try to get a video version loaded just in case you want to be able to watch and see some of the things that we're talking about. So this podcast is going to take you down a pretty deep rabbit hole about arrows. Uh, so just to give you a little back track here over this past year watching all of you shoot at the total archery challenge one of the things to be honest with you that just broke my heart was seeing so many of you show up with arrows that I would say were in a in an extreme uh, point weight category and maybe chasing the extreme FOC category and with that came arrows that weren't as perfectly matched to your bows as what you guys could have made choices on and the arrow flight and quite frankly a lot of the the clearance issues people were having with their scopes and distance they could shoot and and obviously some of the arrow flights and some of the to be honest some of the bending that i was seeing with people's arrow shafts in flights especially since We've filmed thousands of you shoot, and we can go back and watch these arrows in flight. Uh, I've decided to do a little series called The Truth About Arrows, and I would recommend you go to the YouTube channel, Knock on Archery YouTube, uh, and look at some of those. The first video would be uh, 10 Minutes to Save You 10 Years is the first video to this series, and I've put out two more since then. And... People are asking, who got me mad on the arrow subjects, et cetera? And the reality is what got me mad was seeing some of you out there who've spent your hard-earned cash and who have put a tremendous amount of time and effort into trying to learn how to be better at archery, and you went backwards because of some gear choices based on, quite frankly, digital opinion that doesn't give you everything. So I'm trying to give you the opportunity to see arrows from a different light and understand that there's extremes to anything. You drink enough water, it'll kill you, right? Uh, and so for this podcast, I went back to one of my early mentors of training on this subject decades ago, who is a doctor for one, uh, 31 published papers with a doctorate specializing in the flight of an arrow. This is Dr. James Park, uh, someone who has done extensive studies on my personal technique, uh, my setups. He's witnessed me shoot. Uh, I've got to stay with him at his house and pick his brain and, and read some of his doctorate papers, see a lot of his photos. We shared a lot of Excel sheets. We talked a lot of data and this podcast really is for all of you out there who are looking for a way to be absolutely the best, not only on the shooting line, but down on the target. 
and to look at the things that affect accuracy uh, more so than talking about the hypotheticals of a bad hit in an animal situation where you need to have more penetration than if you would have hit the animal in the correct spot. So um, this is going to be an eye-opener for some of you out there. But again, this is a podcast that I'm super passionate about because what I want and what I want more than anything is for all of you out there to be as best as you possibly can and take advantage of an awesome era in archery where equipment's efficient and you're able to really start to do some awesome stuff with your equipment as long as you're not restricting yourself, uh, focusing on, you know, looking at something only at the apples to oranges side or only the oranges to apples side. This really gives you a clear apples to apples, oranges to oranges. Uh, we talk about several things. This is an awesome podcast and If you like it, please share it. It's important for the industry. Have fun, everybody. James Park, handsome devil. How young are you now? Uh, 73, John. Around (laughs) a few years. That's up to my 63rd year of archery. (laughs) That is so impressive. And hey, full disclosure disclosure to anyone listening, um, this call is literally going halfway around the world so there might be a delay please bear with us thank you james for uh for getting on with me i i've been wanting to connect for you for with you for a while so give me a little bit of update what's been going on well i've um in the last few years i've done a lot of coaching um of australia's compound team uh, i've also been doing a lot of uh, research in you know, all the all the matters of you know, where archers lose score, the different physics of how uh, bows and arrows work. Uh, so I keep pretty busy. Uh, yeah, I, I know still you compete. Do. I still compete quite a bit. <laughs> so um, when did you did you and I meet twenty years ago at least? Huh? It'd be two thousand and I think we met two thousand and four in uh, the World Games in Germany. Oh, that's we had right. The pleasure of uh, we had the great pleasure of having you out at our. Uh, our national championships in 2005 as the as a guest yeah yeah i know i never got invited back <laughs> the seminars <laughs> the seminars you gave each day uh, were um very very good indeed you know what i remember most about that was um that was probably the year that i trained the most and i think you and i really jived because just prior to that um I was actually working with Easton on the early developments of the Pro Tour. I don't think it was out yet at World Games, right? I can't remember. <laughs> okay, so ran, but you and I, you were you were kind of deep down the X10 rabbit yes. hole, and um, I had already figured that part out. So we had some yeah. we had some really awesome discussions and. Um, I got to come down and shoot in your nationals, which was a full week. It was actually my favorite nationals of any country because you guys shot all formats throughout a week, even clout, even clout. So we did, yeah. uh, we did a full FIDA. We did yep. a 70 meter Olympic round scoring. We did yep. team Olympic round. Then we did uh, field marked field unmarked clout. I think it stood out to me. I thought it's thing that stood out to me, John was, uh, your perfect score in the field round. 
<laughs> that was pretty yeah i and honestly um i i haven't totally kept up with it but i really feel like for an unmarked that could be the highest unmarked i've ever yeah. shot just because the x count was incredible very very um, high in the 60s yeah. yeah in the 60s out of 72 um yeah, yeah I rem what i remember about that was i was training I was really training that year because I think that's when the world cup teams were the first like actual world cup teams were going to be named and everything. Yes. Um, and so I was shooting a lot at 90 meters and what I was finding in arrows, like drew the two of us together. You were yes. in the process of getting your doctorate, a PhD in aero flight, correct? Not yet yes, though. That's right. Yeah, Not that's yet. right. Okay. Well, I, I got that. Um, I I, got, I was granted my PhD in 2012 after a few after some years of study. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. When we were talking, I was doing the my preliminary thoughts as to uh, how all that stuff worked, and then yeah. I yeah yeah uh, headed off to the university and uh, and uh, did it in detail. I you know what I remember about that? Um, I remember. The very first round we were practicing and we, you guys had us practice at 90 meters at the beginning of the yes. event. We had our first, we had a, cause we were doing a reverse feeder, right? 90, 70, 50, 30 after lunch. That's, so we yeah, started, it, we, we did, did 90 yeah. first, 90, 70. Yes. So our official practice was at 90 and yes. we shot a full end, a full scoring end for practice. And I remember. I'm pretty sure I shot a 355 at 90 or something like that. And I remember it was Clint. Yeah. I remember yeah. Clint goes, because the world record was 392, right? 590. Wait, what was it? it was, 352? No, it would have been, I think you were around about the 350 and the world record was, I think just, uh, just around about the same. Yeah. And it was, and it was Clint's. That's right. Clint had it. And so I, I know I beat his record by a few points in, in, in practice and it was calm as a cucumber. And, uh, he literally looked over to me and he goes, do not beat my world record on my <laughs> own freaking yeah, court. Yeah. And I'm just like, yeah, Clint's, no promise. <laughs> yeah. His record was 347. Oh, that's right. I know I was in the three fifties. So that was, uh, yeah, that was pretty cool. Um, but we had such a, such an amazing conversation. You and I, we did some seminars on some different, uh, topics, but one of the things that really stood out to me was just your understanding of a projectile because I mean, you're a doctor in flight, <laughs> right? Aerodynamics. Yeah. So, um, and were you, were you telling me at the time when you were in that research, were you, were you using Dartfish at the time? What, what program? Cause you were analyzing the efficiency of my technique a lot, weren't you? You were doing a yeah, lot of that was filming. a program I wrote myself that, uh, it preceded things like Dartfish. Uh, so, but I, it was a program I, I developed myself. And then um, since, since then, since then things like Dartfish have come along and do similar, do similar uh, tasks. Were you combining that with the robotics stuff that you were doing as well? Yes. Were you trying to divide the, because you weren't able to tell me everything, but I remember you, you praising 
my style of archery probably yes, on a good. on a completely different level than what most coaches at the time really understood. Yes. What I was looking very carefully was at the uh, the biomechanics and uh, where all the forces were uh, and, uh, yeah, what that would translate through into uh, the impact of errors on your on your score. And what, what struck me was that your your biomechanics was very, very good indeed, which meant that any errors that we all make uh, are not going to affect you as much. <laughs> well, that, that might be a problem for all the testing that i'm doing right now people are just gonna be like okay <laughs> dudley's got some kind of biomechanic phenomenon that's that's yeah. making this stuff work for him no yeah. um to be honest with you what's always been my passion and this goes all the way back to when i came and visited australia was giving as much information Honestly, at that time, most of the countries outside of the U.S. were just not getting the information. All the good shooters were keeping it to themselves. And meanwhile, I was trying to write articles for every single language around the world and trying to do coaching through all the national teams and through World Archery to really expand the knowledge of compound tuning and, and mechanics. Not to, yes. I mean, of course my, my coaching technique, but I feel like, I feel like my coaching technique is, even though I never knew it at the time, now that I've got to know, like, um, when I was in Brazil, uh, one of the founders to the Korean, uh, archery federation came in and, you know, coach Kim. Yeah. yeah I mean, <laughs> we kind of all need to, he's very good. Yeah. He came into my room and he did the same thing. He just said. He sat in on my compound seminar and he said, have you ever, have you ever studied the Korean archery philosophies? And I just said, no, I never have looked at any of them. And he just said, you're paralleling them. Um, yeah. which, you know, honestly, everything that I've taught just comes from <laughs> what I don't want to do. That makes me miss, you know, that's what I've always wanted yeah. to share with people is what is what what makes you miss and how do you avoid that? Because That's what right. I tell people is the difference in a tournament between, you know, me winning a tournament or Chris White or Dave Cousins or Clint Freeman or Dayon or Pat Coglin or Seppi, like the names were plentiful, right? When during our era, yes. let's say, yes, we all made a mistake. Mo yes. But the ones that were on the podium were the ones that when they made it, they still hung the line or that's wrong. they never, we couldn't do it twice. That's like wrong. I always expected one and I would hope that I could land the one, but you just don't have room with these guys to do two. So then, right. so then there lies honestly where you're still at right now by the sounds of it is what makes you miss. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right, John. What I've done is uh, to try to go through every aspect of um, both our technique and our equipment and say, where do we lose scores and why, you know, which ones hurt us? And then what can we do about that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, if, if we can understand, um, yeah, for example, the physics of why we lose scores from, say, Bocant, uh, then what can we do about it? Yeah. Uh, to, yeah. So, yeah, hit, take, the, take all the big hitters. Um, and then gradually deal with all the, all the others that go along as along the line as well. Yeah, yeah. I, well, example, I always, it, 
Yeah. If I look at yeah, if I look at just saying uh, John Dudley shooting, the thing that really stood out to me on the biophysics was if I looked at your all your alignment around this area. Yeah, you were so it's straight. Hand. straight so you were so straight around here and so straight here. Yeah, the mistakes that the mistakes that we make in what we do around here just weren't going to affect you. Uh, Thank you for that. So getting Amen. things like that right. <laughs> <laughs> and trust me, I have not paid him to show you that, but yes, um, the release I use is based on the ergonomics of the hand to where the yes. hand has the ability for some variation without affecting shot accuracy. Makes, that makes a big difference. What I tell people, as soon as the knuckles round, you are in for a real uh surprise bag of tricks <laughs> for what oh, yeah. for what's going to happen to your accuracy which is you know a lot of these people shooting hinges now they're really rolling that thing back to a click to where when you look at their hand up and down it's in a very compromising position before they're yes. even into their shot yes well, one thing that i have uh, been analyzing recently is if you take that arm and, and bend that wrist a little bit the, the lateral forces or you know the forces away from the line of the the arrow become very very high yeah uh, it's, it's, so the tiniest little error you're going to get movement that takes away all the accuracy for example well so there's uh there's there's a release there's someone making a release right now that's doing a really good job of marketing against ours and the thing about it is the distance from the knuckles to the head is is very long which i mean i've had people come to me and they're like you know i really got suckered into this i went away from my knock to it and i tried this but i just don't seem to be as accurate why and i mean part of me like just thinks that they're going to come back from an accuracy point of view but the other part of me wants to say like listen i know a guy that studies literally the shape of the anatomy and how it affects accuracy. And so when I took two years off of um, compound archery to, to learn recurve archery from uh, Juan Carlos and, and George Tekmachoff, uh, one of the first things they taught me was how to, how to grab the string. And they, you know, they literally showed, me on a recurve string on how i grabbed it and then i literally said dude this is easy it's exactly what i'm doing with compound i want to i want a perfectly straight line and i tell people all the time when i see them when i look at people shooting i'm looking at their lines and yeah absolutely you know um what i look for as you say say, keep that keep that distance short Yes, yes, absolutely. Amen. Thank you for saying that. So um, one of the things I tell people, like when I look at someone shooting, the easiest points that I see, I always just see dots and I see dots on shoulders, hips, knees, ankles, and I see dots on elbows and wrists. And what I want to see is, you know, literally a T formation where the center two pyramids of the T are running in a straight line to the hips, then to the feet. And the rear arm needs to be parallel to the front so that, you know, as you're pulling down. So when people start to, you know, lose that elbow a little bit down and out, 
all that starts yep. to affect the direction of the release hand when it naturally busts loose of the string. And sure does, John. <laughs> so I, I tell people, I, I don't know what the lock time is now. I know at one time, well, at least on that. So on that, I was shooting an Apex when I was with you, right? I probably had an Apex and X10 410s, I would guess. Yes, that's right. Yes, I can call it. Um, so I think the lock time on that bow was probably around like 18 thousandths of a second, something like that. Um, and what I tell people is, you know, for 12 to 13 thousandths of that second, the string is still within my face and the string, yeah, that's you right. know, once the release cracks. So for three quarters of that sound that you hear you actually have the ability to make a bunch of micro mistakes that are going to magnify more and more and more depending on how far you shoot for one uh obviously any part of your technique whether it's follow through facial pressure shoulder position you're what you're doing with your grip that's all going to have a huge factor but then on top of that, if you vary it all in any of those mechanics, now your projectile starts to also reflect those things downrange. Yes. So how many high-speed or aeroflight videos do you think you have watched? Oh, um, <laughs> some hundreds. <laughs> Um, and I've watched, usually watch them frame by frame. <laughs> I was going to say, you've had how many, you've had hundreds of students, like students. I know yeah. that yeah. hundreds of yes. students. And, and, you know, I know when you're working with the national team, you guys were always big on, you guys had people that had good aeroflight come, you know, if they couldn't shoot, I knew that they would at least have good aeroflight. Was that, yeah. I feel like that was all, that was always Clint's thing too. Clint. Yes. Clint was an aeroflight fanatic, right? Yes. It was always very, very good. Um, and uh, yeah, it's important. Because even his loops that he would make and everything would like, he would change a loop style just so that his aeroflight would be what he needed to with a release yes. that he was shooting at the time. Yes. And, yes. and so yeah. Everyone out there listening, Clint Freeman is actually uh, the first person to shoot the ninety meter. Uh, well, no, he was the first fourteen hundred, but then he, but then well, he first shot the 1400. first fourteen hundred uh, ever, and then shot ten, and then ten, ten world records. Is that what he had? 10? Yeah, ten. Yeah, ten yeah. world records. Yeah, he was at one stage. He was awesome. he had the record for every every distance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so I wish we had Clint on here too. I need to get a make sure make sure uh zoom goes into tasmania and get clint but for him during those times do you know was his tuning process always more about the groups than it was anything else did you ever ask him i i don't have it that in detail uh like i've shot with a clint a, a large amount regrettably he always could tended to beat me which was annoying <laughs> but <laughs> Dude, shot with awesome. him a lot uh, yeah, during my best years, that was also Clint's best years. So uh, he was a tough competitor. Uh, like he he was shooting uh, a fourteen forty round every every day, right? Uh, and uh, so he he was putting it in, you know, a world worth of effort. And he was very particular about arrow flight. Um, exactly his tuning procedure, I, I'm not certain, 
but yeah, it was very, very good. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that I'm kind of going to dedicate some time to right now is trying to open people's minds, um, at least have a two-way avenue to where people can think about Aeroflight, not necessarily yeah. from a absolute of, well, if you want to pass through an elk, you have to have this and, and, you know, you need to, you need to have this much FOC and you need, you know, I feel like it's really important for the hunting side of our house as an industry yes. to recognize what the art, the target archery side of the house is learned from a ballistics and an accuracy point of view, and then try to find the middle ground to where the person that is just a hunter or the person that's going to these tack events or like a Redding style event where you're shooting longer yardage to where you start to understand the gives and the takes, the pros and the cons and the apples and the oranges and Unfortunately, right now, there's so many people in the digital realm that are, that are, they're, they're showing apples to apples to, to give a, a person with common sense, you know, this idea of, oh, well, this total, like, I need to be doing it that way. Yeah, that totally makes sense. But the reality is there's, there's a very, very important middle ground to this whole equation and how, arrows work and what they need to do you know in order to go down range because it's not just an overall arrow weight and it's not just a percentage in the front of that arrow that is going to make you accurate and i just keep preaching as a hunter listen as a hunter my target moves in 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 target archery if there was someone down there that could move my target up or down when, as long as they can move it, once my shot went off, they were allowed to move it up or down. Listen, I'd be shooting even faster. I probably wouldn't have shot X tens. I probably would have went for the ACEs even on the feet of rounds. And yes, you, you know what I mean? Just because I would have wanted the speed just to make do for reaction. So, yes. you know, in this case, like, like I said, this test that I just did, um, you know, for me to go from a 500 to a to a 600 grain arrow at 80 yards there is a 10 yard difference in sight scale. It's a big change, isn't it, John? So for me to shoot a 510 grain arrow at 80 yards, I would have to uh or if I was at 80 yards, I could with a 610 grain, grain arrow with my sight in the same spot, I would have to step up 10 yards to hit the center. 10 yards you'd have to walk up people to hit the center without moving your sight with a hundred grains different in yes. that arrow so when you're talking about an animal that is reacting either to the sound of the bow which is normally the first reaction which in most cases is them looking at you or looking the direction of the sound but then on the second sound which would be your fletchings or an inbound projectile of the broadhead that a hundred percent, if they have the two different sounds from the same location, that is triggered a, a fight or flight reaction. And now they're spinning and moving and getting out of the way. Whereas if the only noise they hear is either the projectile coming in or 
the sound of the bow, well, now their first reaction is what is that sound and where is it coming from? And by then it's yes. too late. But if yes. you have two sounds on top of one another as a hunter, this is a disastrous scenario. So I was hoping you could kind of shed some light on some of this and how people, when people focus on the accuracy of their arrow, what, what are the key things to think about and what are some of the things that you don't see people thinking about or some of your students that they need to? When, uh, like I, I have analyzed a lot of that, uh, not, not from uh, a hunting point of view, but from a, a target archery point of view. But as you say, it's, it's, it's very strongly related, I think. As you're right. Saying. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Um, it is. Like the thing, the thing that kills you on the target range is wind drift. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so what what that says for a, for a target arrow is you, is you want it to be skinny and heavy, uh, yeah. but 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 you do know what the distance is, yeah, very accurately. That and see that's the only other thing is like imagine, um, so imagine as a hunter, you, you range an animal, and then by the time you set your sight and the, and it gives you the angle you want, well now it's taken two or three steps, and you really that's don't right. want to have to rearrange and and no. redo. So now no, this now, becomes an issue, right? Yeah, well, yes, it does now. Uh, the other thing I have analysed is uh, field archery. Uh, right, <laughs> which is relative. Again, from the point of view of uh, yeah, fixed targets, not moving animals. Now, of course, in field archery, we don't, we don't always know the distance. Now, the world archery round, you don't know the distance for some of the, some of the targets. Uh, and so what, what that then says is, and, and you probably haven't got as much wind, Right. Uh, so the thing that thing that matters then is yeah, can you get a bit more arrow speed so that you 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 get remove some of the the distance uncertainty, right? Uh, right. So yeah, for example, what that's then saying to me is that you you'd use a a small diameter arrow but not so heavy, right? Uh, right. So that you you can keep that that speed. So as you say, that sight sight gap uh, is not so severe. Yeah. Well, like for me, I shoot a, I shoot an arrow that's over 500 grains. It's normally with a lighted yep. knock around five, five twenty nine, I think. Um, yep. but I have, I, you know, I shoot 75 pounds and I've got, you know, 30 and a half inch draw, sometimes 31, depending on what type of clothing I'm using. So I'm in a little bit different category than everybody else, but I also, you know, I just want people to realize like for the longest time an axis or an FMJ or some of the old Beeman's ACCs and ACC was probably one of the most awesome hunting arrow, you know, back yes. at that time, but it was very, it was light, you know, the, that ACC yes. were in the mid four hundreds. And, you know, when you look at a lot of the hunters all through that era, they were all being very, very efficient with that arrow. And it was, in the low fours to the low fives for arrow weight. Yes. Now, certainly when yes. people went to Africa or if someone's going for, you know, like a water Buffalo, say in, in Australia, you have to, you definitely need to start paying attention to what you have on the front. You know, you're going to need to cool. cut on impact. You're not going to want a massive expandable on a large game animal. And certainly no. the lighter you go in the arrow, the the more you need to recognize that you know you can't shoot 50 pounds 
uh, with a 27 inch draw and go try to shoot, you know, 450 grain arrow with a two inch, uh, expandable like that, anything small game or better. Yeah. You know, antelope or smaller, but if you start getting a big whitetail, you know, at a mid, a mid range distance, 40 to 50 yards. Well, yeah. Now, if you hit solid bone mass, there's going to be a problem, you know, it's going to be a problem. So I don't know. I always look at the hunting situation as when I look at an animal, I kind of look at it as like a target bale. If a target is, if a bale is sitting in a frame, 90% of it, I can shoot an arrow in there and I might bury, bury to the fletchings or I might hit something and not go in very far, but it's not going to do any major like damage. But if I hit the frame, like, <laughs> you know, it's just not going in. It's gonna, yeah. and, and I think that way too, it's, you know, I look at a, I look at an elk and I'm like, okay, 10% of this animal, I don't want to hit it. You know, I don't, I don't want to hit it. It's rock hard. It's dense. And what I want to do is be so dang accurate that I'm, I am more likely to hit the 90% than if I hit that 10. And so, yeah, absolutely. you know, when I hear people say, well, I want a 600 grain arrow. What if I hit the shoulder on an elk? Well, certain part of the shoulder or a knuckle or an arm bone, honestly, even for a 27 inch draw shooter shooting a 600 grain arrow, he's probably not going through the humerus bone of an elk no. anyway. No, yeah. Yeah. Chris right. is a bit more important, isn't it? Right. Right. So how, tell me this, when it comes to speed, um, and we talked a little bit about lock time, how important is that? speed to kind of making up for some of your flaws and in, in in compound archery because i i remember talking to um one of our olympians here years ago and he was shooting he actually was shooting uh outdoor arrows for vegas and i said how come you're not shooting the you know the fat diameter shafts and he just said for me personally, I feel like this arrow getting off my string faster is actually more accurate for me than trying to shoot the big shafts that are taking longer to get out of my string. Yeah, I, like I think that the important factor there, John, is we can, we can consider things like you know, wind drift and FOC and et cetera. But ultimately, you know, for example, wind drift, uh, you know, a heavier arrow is always going to drift less. But the but the thing's still got to group well. If it doesn't group well, then you, you, you there's no advantage. Right. So I, I would always go down the the road of saying, what does the physics tell me I should do? But then I'm sure as anything going to grip test it and uh, you know tip. Usually with my shooting machine. And for example, right. if I went to an extreme extreme weight of arrow. Uh, that might give me, for example, more energy downrange, or it might give me We're breaking up a little bit, everybody, but bear with us. We should be able to sift through the patchiness. You there, James? Okay. No, sorry, I'm back again, John. Yes, okay. I, like, I guess I think I lost you for a moment. What, so, uh, what I would always do is to say, uh, ultimately, my my choice has got to group. Yeah, uh, but if uh, 
if I, if for example, I go to a, say, say I went to a very heavy point to get less wind drift, yeah, that might get me less wind drift, but it might not group. Right, right. Uh, and and so there may be there may be no point in going to, yeah, you know, that that sort of change because it, yeah, it's going to hurt my score anyway. Right. Uh, yeah. So some of these extreme things that I see people do, uh, I I wonder if they're they're being wise in. Uh, yeah, have they actually tested that the thing actually still the yeah, groups as well? You, you're you're into an example. For example, if you if you know, take a, a recurver using you know, say X tens versus big aluminiums, the aluminiums will, for example, cut the lines more, but they might not group. Right. Yeah. For sure. Well, so uh, I actually I shot. I had a field bow that I was working on. It shot so freaking good. And I really didn't want to change the blade, the launcher blade on it. I was afraid to even unscrew the blade and put a new one on and, and put, try to put this yeah. one back in the same spot. And so, um, and I actually just posted this picture the other day, but I ended up shooting a, a 30 X 300 round with X tens. They might've been pro tours, but they were one of the two. Yeah. And I mean, it was an inside out round. And so, yeah. you know, that's when the question comes up. It's like, listen, of course, like why, you know, why am I not thinking about this? Because if I have a wild shot, yes, the diameter is going to help me. But the reality is when cool. you really go through the tuning process of seeing how an arrow groups at 90 meters and for probably five years of my life, I would say 80% of my shooting was at 90 meters because it was the biggest microscope I had on my technique yes. and everything about my technique and how I polished my technique was really based on how could I make these arrows that grouped this good when I was shooting perfectly, how could I minimize that one or two wild ones and still hold a 10 yes. or, you know, or maybe a nine, right. But, but not, you know, holding gold is much different than you know, hitting some reds. Cause obviously you hit sure. one red. Now you're, now you're like on the, you know, you're on the cut line, at least with the savages I used to compete with. Um, yes. so do you think, uh, my observation and I, right now I'm shooting these events called total archery challenge. And honestly, it's not pros. There's a few pros there, but it's, it's grassroots archers is really what it is. But a lot of these guys are showing up with either bows that they've got set up from a shop and they just went in and said, just give me what I need. Or some of these guys I can tell that are starting to do their own arrows and maybe they started with some of ours and then now they're going down some of these other avenues to where there's some pretty appealing clickbait out there, but I honestly, when I stood back this last year, this was the worst arrow flight year I've ever spectated from, from behind 10,000 people watching arrows go up and, and, and I was almost always at a hundred yard target. I mean, it seems like these people that would step up and have this huge growth on the front of their arrow so that they would have this ridiculous FOC number. What happens is the point is for sure tracking, but the back end of the arrow is just kind of moving around this center point of mass, trying to figure out how to correct itself. So like what's your, from, from literally just a, 
physics and doctor of aeroflight point of view, what's happening when I see that? Um, well, if, if as you add more um, point mass, of course, the arrow is going to flex more. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for sure. It must. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, if you get you know, too big a flex, the, 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 you can get you know things things happen that that are, that are not nice in the way the arrow behaves. Because uh, I remember you guys get, talking about a snake bend. I remember yes. a lot of the early, very high speed slow motion footage we did of different teams, and yes, and I, I know I know Kesick Lee and everything was was filming me back in the day. And when they watched me and Dave Cousins shoot, our arrows were always in like a perfect paradox. Yes. And then they would start yes. rotation, whereas some would flex dramatically and then it would create this like a snake yes. bend. Where I have, I have looked at that. I have looked at that one, John. What's happening there is that there are multiple modes of flexing of the arrow. Um, there's what would be called the first mode, which is the is the normal. The normal flex uh, for and a compound the, archer, it would be an up and down paradox. Usually, usually, okay. uh, or recurve. It will be sideways. Right. Uh, the the next mode uh, that comes along is a is the second mode. It's sort of a uh, it's it's a it's a higher. It's, it's like higher doing the wave. Mode. It's like a it's like a crowd in the stands doing the wave. That's literally yeah, that's your... right. And uh, <laughs> so that that will be the second mode of flexing. Yeah, and so it's where you get uh, too much of that second mode that you get that S shape. Yeah, uh, and uh, so what what would be that would be you know you and cousins would have been getting getting primarily the first mode. Yeah, and the the ugly ones have been getting a bit too much of the second mode. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so when the uh, when so when you have too much flex in mode two of the cycle. Yes. Then, then so you get at that S point, are you maybe. putting more? You would have to be putting more emphasis as that snake hits the front. It's going to put more emphasis on what the heck that front's doing. If there's a broadhead in there, well, now you've got a bladed object pointing in a weird direction. Yes. If it's on the back, depending on the type of fletch you use, obviously you could fully take away or give a boost to any type of steering that the front is doing versus the back. So then that's oh, when yes, it gets can. pretty, pretty spicy. Oh yes, you can. Uh, that gets very complicated <laughs> and uh, it can get ugly. Uh, it's, it's much, uh, it's much uh, gentler if the thing you know, behaves, uh, you know, for example, um, like a more normal flex. Right. Right. Uh, right. Now you say, if you go to things like, for example, uh, yeah, extreme point weights. Some of those ugly things can start to happen. For, for example, yeah. Well, I've seen. Or if that. you don't tune the bow very well, you can get some of those ugly things happen as well. You know, one of the things that I well, you just I always tell people you don't tune a bow, you tune arrows. You set up a bow. Um, yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, I always and what's funny is, is through some of these tests I've done over the last several days, um, I'm shooting like multiple multiple offsets yes. right hand left hand out of the same bow i'm shooting yesterday i did a did you see the video i did yesterday yesterday i shot uh i shot our group at 70 meters with 
with four arrows. Two of them had uh, one and a half degree and two of them had three degree helical and they just shot, you know, the threes were yeah. a little bit lower, which, you yeah. know, the further you go and the more degree you have, the lower they're going to get. But what I'm trying yes. to show people is like on the first day, I showed them stuff with a five millimeter arrow with a four inch or with a three inch flat four fletch. Then on day two, I went to a six millimeter arrow with a much different point weight configuration and a three fletch with a Easton factory three fletch offset. And I showed them, I'm like, listen, for most people, most people can't outshoot those groups that I did live. So it's like, yeah. if you can't do that, it's hard for you to argue with me the yeah, historical data that I've done with people like yourself. And, and this isn't even factoring in the, the countless years I've trained with people that are better than me, the Dave cousins, the Clint Freeman's, the, the Chris whites, the freaking day sitars, the Morgan Lundin's, the Martin dams bows, you know, uh, yeah, they're good <laughs> freaking Peter in the Netherlands. Like I grew up during a, a very difficult time where people were still trying to learn equipment and learn how to set world records. And with all these people, yeah. when we practiced together, there just was no room for having something that wasn't well thought out. And people just really went to what grouped rather than just trying to fixate on certain numbers, because the reality is the, the combinations are so endless that, you know, the great thing is we can tune an arrow to a bow and the bow doesn't have to move and it'll probably do pretty good. Now, if you put the one thing I'll tell people, they were like, well, you, what if your arrow flight wasn't perfect? You know, a lot of people are saying, well, you probably weren't getting a bullet hole when you switch shaft yes. diameters and everything. And I'm like, you know what? I know that I wasn't, but so then what I did was I actually showed, uh, the video of, uh, I showed a video of the bow that you, uh, watched me shoot at nationals. And that bow was the most fantastic grouping bow possibly ever at, anything up to 90 meters and because i shot the field round with it too um yeah. you know I, I i cleaned a field round i think i cleaned two field rounds but i cleaned the no did i miss one on the marked um i think you got the marked one you got clean i remember watching your last shot and you had to get it in and you got it <laughs> in so I, i'm sure you got the marked one clean okay so yeah because the marked is actually the hardest right because it's the longest yes, it distances okay so yes it is um so, yeah, I mean, that bow was just shooting fantastic at anything from 10 to 90 meters. Yes. And and literally shooting X's on bunny bunny dots, which are the size of the tenoring of a Vegas face, shooting yes. X's on those. Actually, I think I cleaned every X inside of 40 meters. Um, yeah. So that thing was all about how it grouped at long range and everything added up now now with in saying that i can definitely say that i've had bows that have shot fantastic at the longer distances but were a little bit more squirrely at 
30 meters. And by that, I remember specifically, I was trying to get more speed because I really wanted the X10s for field. And, you know, I missed, I think I missed one on the unmarked round uh, with you guys. But, you know, if I had 10 feet per second more, I wouldn't have missed that dot because yeah, of my right. miss, because of my miscalculation. So what I was trying to do was try, I was trying to find a 450 with a rear cut configuration that would mirror my 410 configuration, but the lightness of the 450 versus the 410 would have gave me the speed that I needed. So I was desperately trying to find a perfect recipe on a 450 that was cut differently to match the exact recipe I had on the 410. But what I found was once I weakened up, because I was right on the border of being too weak, my shorter distances were just a little looser than when I had yes. that perfect match for the longer one. So yes. for me, when it came down to me documenting my scores, I'm like, listen, yes, if I'm off two yards with this heavier arrow, I'm going to miss a point on an unmarked round. However, my X count is so much higher that if I make a 80 percentile shot, I'm still holding the five versus, and by that, the five is the highest score on a, on a feet of field face, by the way, people, uh, you're shooting arrows at, you know, the max score in the middle is five, four, three, two, one. I think, I think then, I think then it was five. Yeah. Now it's, now it's changed to a six, but then yeah, it was right. five. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> um, so yeah, I had to just look at my results on paper and realize I'm actually better off, you know, because this one groups better and it lets me get away with a bad shot. And that's one thing I stress yep. to people is you really need to know your shot on a scale system. So if you know what a perfect archery shot is, or if you know what your perfect archery shot is, I always say, in my mind, that's a 10. When someone says, how did you shoot today? I'm going to come off around and say, I shot, I shot 67 good ones today. And that might not mean I'm only five off. What that might mean is technique wise, I was very satisfied with 67 of my shots. But yep. what you need to do is you need to find that build to where when you have a, a shot that's an eight out of a 10, you're still getting an A on the test and not getting a B. Because absolutely, when it comes to forgiveness, every bow might not be the same, but certainly your arrows combination to that bow is 100% going to result in what many would refer to as forgiveness yes yes yeah i agree with that john so for you where do you start with students you know on i and and this is going to obviously be from the target side of the house people who are listening but i hope you realize that we're literally talking to someone with a phd in aeroflight <laughs> How many, <laughs> how many, um, how many thing, how many different articles have you had published, uh, um, scientifically in, in relations to your research? This isn't like one paper, by the way. Yeah, exactly. Our professional journals is 31, John. Okay. Thir 31 professional journals. So yeah, 31. uh, it's just, yeah. this is, this is getting hard for me to bite my tongue on this subject because <laughs> they're, 
there's listen there's there's for sure a few dozen people that can come here in my yard and beat me right now you know i'm not i'm not myself when i was in my 20s but there's also a lot that are given opinions that i know cannot and when it comes to hunting there's definitely ones between myself and some of my friends that have been on my podcast you're talking about you know i probably have 10 friends that could easily be thousands upon thousands of animals and none of those are telling people that they have to have a certain percentage of foc in order to be lethal as a bow hunter right. and right. and and what's disturbing is all those people that are successful are accuracy fanatics. So James, what, if you have someone, what are some of the key things they need to really consider when choosing an arrow or the right arrow? Right. And now, so the the game I'm dealing, generally dealing with, so John is, is normally target archery or field archery. Uh, and so if, if we're dealing with, with target archery, what I'm wanting them to do is to first go to a small diameter arrow. Yeah. So I'll be normally aiming at something like an X10 or a Pro Tour. Right, right. And then I want to use the uh, the standard normal uh, point. So I'd be you generally aiming at the 120 20 grain point unless they're uh, you know, uh, using a very lightweight arrow. Then I might right. go lighter. Yeah, but typically, someone like uh, yeah me, I would going, I'd be going, oh yeah, I'm, I'm normal, you know, standard six foot archer using sixty pounds and twenty nine inches. I'd be going, yeah, something like a you know three eighty or or so uh, with one hundred twenty grains, right? Uh, and then I want to uh, go with a I, I, on, from point of view of fletchers, I want a, a small fletch angle. Not not zero and not extreme. Now, uh, I see. I, I too often see people going with zero. Uh, oh, giving away <laughs> hand over the knuckleball. Uh, nice. I'm wanting people to go to about about one degree of angle. Yeah. Okay. Uh, not an ex, not an extreme angle. Uh, right. So what I'm, what I'm wanting there is people to 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 spin their arrow a couple of times in the shortest distance they shoot, and about one degree will do that. Right. Uh, and then if I was talking, say, a field archer, uh, where where you might have the unknown distances uh, and you've got hills, uh, you haven't got as much wind. Right. So I'm saying what we, what we then want to do is we want to get uh, to get up a bit more arrow speed uh, to uh, take out some of the, that un- distance uncertainty or hill uncertainty. Now, so, for example, I shoot both compound and recurve. Uh, uh, if I shoot recurve, uh, you know, recurve arrows are slow. If I shoot my X10s on recurve and I make a distance error, it kills me. Uh, so, for example, on, on recurve, I'm saying arrow speed matters immensely, so I would shoot ACEs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but again, for I field, that, for field. I'm not, for field, and I'm not going to go to an extreme point weight because I want right. the arrow speed. Because uh, uh, I, I want my sight gap to be down, so that I'm, I'm taking away the uncertainty. Now, I guess that's similar to when you're hunting; you, you, you don't want that uncertainty. It's the same sort of deal. Yeah. Yep. But see, the thing is here. So here, in a hunting situation, here's where 
here's where the trade-offs start. So for those of you listening, um, you know, James is talking about, he probably would have used 120 grain tungsten point, but he's also probably going yes. with like a 187 vein. So a 1.87 vein or a 175 yes. possibly, maybe a PM 2.0. If he was just doing field to where you were 60 meters or less, you could go with that. Am I right? Yes, yes, John. I'm not okay. overdoing the fletch. Okay. I'm, I'm using okay. just enough fletch so it gets me. Right. Okay. Okay. So, so from a hunting point of view, for those of you listening, here's the difference. So obviously we, at one time, people for sure would put an aluminum insert in these arrows, which was almost 20 grains and a hundred grain point. And listen, the only thing any of you ever thought about was, do I want a hundred grain head or a 125 or a 150? Now that there's heavier inserts, and one of the things that I did when I first started shooting the Axis was I was begging Easton to make brass inserts so that I could choose a 50 or a 75 grain brass insert, which would make up for the weight that I'm putting on the rear of a shaft in the bigger fletch so that it would make up for the need that I had in that bigger fletch to steer a broadhead in the front of the arrow. So if you look at it, it's, I'm not being super precise, but if you think about it, when, when James is talking about a 120 point and this fletch that's two inches, you almost have these two things that are about similar in length. If I'm, if I'm, honest but then when you when you put a vinyl crest and you put a four fletch of a three inch vein on the back of an arrow well now you want you definitely do want to offset that front of center and you need to load a little bit more so for me that's when the 50 and the 75 grain came in with the option of a of a hundred up to a 150 screwing point i felt like that was awesome media ground i honestly felt like i was having almost the same accuracy as what I was having with the target bow, but I was, I had an eight inch stabilizer and no magnify, no magnification of my lens. And I had a three sixteenths peep sight and my equipment was more tailored for hunting. But what I was doing was trying to slightly skew the formula to make up for the slight variations that we have now. It sounds good strategy to me, John. Okay. Okay. So one of the things that I tested quite a bit, um, when I started doing the longer range stuff was vein offset. And because what happened was in field, when you have a 10 meter bunny target, and then you've got to go to the 60 meter 60. 66 yards and then if I needed to take that same bow to like, let's say I was traveling to Australia, I didn't want to have to travel with a field bow and a feeder bow. I, I really was trying to build crossover bows. So I went through this whole thing of what do I need to do in order to get this ballistic that's awesome for long range? What do I need to do to correct it fast enough to where it can shorten, shoot in the mid range too? What I found is when my angle was too steep, one, there becomes, there start to become an issue with clearance, but now with yes. limb driven style rests, which most people are using that can somewhat factor out. 
But then the next thing is what I realized, and and I really realized this when I did testing for Eason with the QAD quick spin veins, because at one time we were actually going to offer those quick spin veins as the pre-fletch vein, like the vein on pre-fletch arrows, you know, the little high profile two inch. But what happened was, and I remember a couple 3D shooters who were actually getting paid by, by NAP showed up to uh, the Gold Cup and the Arizona Cup with those small inch and a half quick spin veins. And what happened was as soon as they hit the 90 meter mark, the, it just, their, their scores and honestly what they're, they were capable of. These archers were capable of much more than that, but cousins and I just looked at each other like, don't tell them, but their arrows spinning too fast. It's decelerating too quickly. And you can see the distances where they're freaking tight, tight. And then all of a sudden they start to balloon out and the arrow starts to lose its speed and the accuracy starts to default. So what's your thoughts on, on that, James, from a scientific point of view? Well, I've done lots and lots of testing of uh, Fletch Angle, uh, and you can overdo it. Uh, yeah, first, you, first you must have You some. said you can overdo it, correct? Can, can overdo okay. it. You, okay. Like you must have some angle, uh, otherwise they're not as accurate. They simply don't group as well. Uh, but I, what I've come to... to I think is that about one degree or so is plenty. Uh, yeah. So yeah, one degree is going to at the you know, the ten meter target. It's going to spin your arrow a couple of times, which is plenty, and it's not going to overspin it down the range. Uh, yeah, down the range, as you say, if you overspin it, the long range accuracy just goes away. Yeah. So I I I, I don't want people to overdo the switch angle. I'm gonna just grab two arrows quick, James. Let me come right back. One second. So uh, for those of you watching, I don't know if we'll actually do the video on this, but hopefully we will. So I just grabbed four arrows real quick that I saw. Uh, yep. This arrow right here, this yellow one, I know is what I used in 05, 06. And uh, so I'm going to hold this up for those of you who are looking on the camera. And I'll try to get it to where... James can look at it. Yeah. And tell me. So it's, well, we uh, we know what it did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, that's looking it, to it me broke like broke some Australian like about, records uh, and and won me a bunch of yeah. gold medals that weekend. Yeah, it looks like it's got something like about one degree as it, it, it. Yeah. Okay. So here is uh the arrow that cousins and I shot for field. Um, yeah. So yep. here, here's our arrow that I shot for field. So every yep. field medal that I yep. won was What's, with this uh, arrow. What, what type of shaft is that one, John? Uh, I ended up going with an X10. Uh, okay. So this is a... Oh, so that looks like it's got about the... Um, like if I, if I take a, an <laughs> Look X10... Look at the difference. Yeah, so this, <laughs> so this, is, this, is, a, this is a 410 with... This was a 410 with with a full two and a half off the back. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
but I was able to do that. I could do two full off the back with a full 120 tungsten in this one. Now, see on this yeah. other one, because, and this is going to get a little deep for people listening. So the a tungsten, tungsten as a material is very dense, very heavy. So the, yes. the, the distance that this arrow goes inside of this arrow shaft is very short. Very short. Okay, versus the stainless steel points, which although these weren't as durable and sometimes could bend in a target, what I found was even though I did not want to shoot these, okay, everybody, these are the cheap points. Even though I did not want to shoot these, because the length of the shaft was different, and when it goes, once this goes internal into the arrow shaft, then the point of your flex on the arrow starts to change differently because you've actually stiffened more of the front portion yeah. of this of this arrow. So instead of when this thing is shot and it's flex, right? So right there would be kind of an ideal paradox, correct, James? Yes, just and then and then and honestly, just so everyone, if anyone's watching, if I do put this video out, so when this flex is up and down like this. There's actually a point where the rear, if you have a perfectly straight line across, there's a point where the rear and the point and the point are crossing the same horizontal plane. And we referred to that as the node, correct, James? Yeah, the nodes would be um uh, myself an arrow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So when this is flexing, the nodes would be the nodes would be about 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 there and and there. Yeah, and and that can and that so and that can change. You can change your node based on the length of your arrow shaft. You can change that node depending on the length of the shank that's going internally. So and the point mess. Yeah, the weight of the point obviously decides this. So the point, so one of the things, this is going a little bit even deeper, some people and myself included have even tested on where the launcher needs to be in relation to the actual node of that arrow, according to how it's reacting to the bow that is projecting it. So again, I did not want to yes, like we'll go down this rabbit hole with people because I feel like I'm going to confuse a buttload of people. But what I'm really trying to do is just say, everybody trust me. James wants to make the world better. I want to make the archery world better. I have James, do you think it's fair to say I could shoot any archery brand in the world that I would want? Oh, I think so, John. <laughs> okay. And do you think based on what you see, I'm picking ones that I think I'm going to be the most accurate with? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> and, and true. And in all fairness, I will say this, I've been with Easton a long time. Arrows, other arrow companies have come a long way. There are some awesome, there's some great arrows from some other manufacturers out there. Now in the target side of the house, James's side of the house on this screen right now, no one's got anything that's going to compete with this baby. Right. Like Easton, the best. Easton owns long yeah. range. They own long range. I've, uh, I've analyzed them all, John, and uh, the, the arrow you got in your hand is the best. 
<laughs> I know I've seen <laughs> I've seen the data, and I I don't. It's also, uh, it's don't also what I've got on my hand. Yeah, yeah. These things are these things are spectacular. Okay, so yeah. I showed everybody on this. that uh, on that Fletch angle, John. Uh, let me yes. show you. This is the I'll show you the angle I've got on mine. Can you see that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's probably one seven five, maybe on that particular. Yeah, now that's one. A, yeah, it is, and and uh, look, this this is an arrow, this is actually an arrow I shot mm -hmm. in nineteen ninety nine and won our national championships. Uh, oh, but you nice. can see, I've got there, I've got there about uh, that'll be about a bit over one degree. Yeah, and that's a what is, is that a flex fletch like a? Yes, is it is. Two point two point oh. Was that a two? Uh, was that one, a two point oh? One, one, three, one and three quarter. One and three quarter. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I just showed you guys that vein. Now I'm going to show you. So this right here is what I shot at TAC. So at TAC, I'm shooting. I honestly want more of a hybrid setup, James. I don't want to go out there looking like a total target guy. So I'm trying yeah. to build something that's a crossover. So I could I could hunt with this Sonic KE arrow if I wanted. I would just put a longer fletch on there and I would put more point weight in the front. For cool. for I've got 150 total in the front for my tack. So I have a 50 grain brass, 100 grain screw in. I'm shooting yep. a 187 in the back. And this is set it right at about two and a half degrees. But you know, for me, this is a very good compromise for my hunting arrow. I can clear 130 yes. yards with it. And it's uh, plenty. It's plenty of fletch angle. You don't need any more than that. Okay. So now listen to me a little bit, and I'm gonna. I'm, you're either gonna tell me I'm wrong, or you can understand okay. why I did this. So here is an arrow. Um, this right here is an arrow that we sell, and this is how we set up every bits and burger jig that we sell. Um, yep. So this is a four fletch, mainly for the you know for the hunters out there. It's a four fletch and. This is set at two and a half degrees. And the reason it is, is because people have to steer a magnitude of broadheads. Some of them are very fixed blade oriented. Some of them are, are mechanical oriented. But more importantly to me, when it comes to a projectile for hunting is the audible sound. So what I found is with a four fletch and especially when the front of the lead vein is right at the back edge of the rear vein when this is turning it's it's more like a ceiling fan that's moving air rather than chopping air so the audible sound on this fletch in this configuration is the quietest that i can personally build this way so again, I'm, I'm not comparing apples to oranges, but what I'm doing is I'm trying to take an orange and I'm trying to use the apple and the orange philosophy to, to try to give you something that is giving you the best of both based on the application that this is intended for. However, even though a bits and burger can go to three and a half, the three and a half like this becomes diminishing return once again this is going to start to parachute it's going to start to decelerate like, um like I, I think you've got plenty of plenty of offset there john i wouldn't go to any more than that no no that's that's max and and just what yeah. i found from testing with the microphone is 
you know, when there's space between, it seems like it, it builds an ability to whistle or yes. have an audible like that versus it seems like the more I cross them over, um, the more it's just like, you know, it just takes that away. So that's kind yeah. of, that's the method to my madness. So please tell me yeah. whether it was right or wrong. <laughs> like, like your game, hunting game, you're trying to optimize a little bit differently to my game. Yeah. Uh, and so the sound, the sound for you matters a lot. Doesn't matter to me much at all for the target <laughs> game. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Um, but looking at that arrow, that you've got plenty of fletch angle, that's going to work. Okay. So if if you're there, if you've optimized it there for the sound, uh, also from the point of view of how much you're spinning in the arrow, it looks to me like you've got it pretty good as well. Uh, yep. You don't need any more angle than that. So, James, did you ever read my article on the hill method? Or did no, I talk I, to you about that when I talked to you no, about I'm, the I'm horizontal not... impact line? Uh, when I'm I was doing my... I... Yeah. Okay. I, 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 I'm, I, I've seen a little bit of it, John. Okay. Okay. Um, so during a lot of my testing during that era, which was a decade, um, yeah. and what people need to realize too is when you're when you work for a bow manufacturer and especially when you're one of the lead people that are reporting the accuracy of those bows to the companies that means you're setting up something that doesn't necessarily tune it's literally this is a concept they haven't figured out string placement riser angle like that stuff isn't figured out so when i have to build this thing that's the first one ever out and go and do a report on how it shoots. One, you don't want to have to go through this long, hellacious thing of paper tuning, bear shaft tuning, walk back tuning, then does it group? The reality was from all my testing of doing it that way and including on bows that won medals for me, my shortcuts, like everyone wants to know the hack and everyone wants to know the shortcut. I'm going to tell you my shortcut, James, and you tell me whether or not I'm missing something because I want people listening to this podcast to a hundred percent. Like if I'm not doing it right, I want to get corrected. You know what I mean? I want, sure. I want to know. So what I've found is paper tuning is the best thing I know for starting point because one, if you don't have a good tear through paper and you make an adjustment and the tear doesn't change, you immediately know that there's something that is either contacting or something not going right with the launch of that arrow. There's interference. And if there's a clearance issue or a timing issue on the rest, then everything else you do for the next two weeks is going to just be a headache. Because paper identifies, for me, more so than anything, arrow rest placement and clearance issues. That's what it indicates. It, or technique issues. If you've got a ridiculous face pressure and you're having to set your arrow shaft pointing all the way over to 10 o'clock on the next target in order to get a bullet hole, this is giving you indicators that something's not right. So... 
Yes. For me, for me, I start with paper. I line it down the pipe. My knock is at 90 degrees. Certain bows, I like this, the starting place of placement of my arrow at different positions on a burger buttonhole, depending on the type of brand of bow and where their grip is naturally placed in the riser versus that arrow rest mounting position. So I may start my up and down point according to the where it's relative to your your riser shelf. I might be a little higher on one bow model than another, but I'll get that figured out first and it will be set at 90 degrees when I tie my knocking points. Then I look over the top of the bow and I want my I want my arrow shaft running down the center of my string and the center of my tiller bolts and ideally if if the bow is, if the riser is straight and if the stabilizers are straight, there's a very, very good chance your arrow shaft's going to be within the center line of your stabilizer. Now, if you have that and you're within an eighth inch tear and, you know, and if you make a little adjustment and that tear just instantly, okay, now I have a perfect bullet hole. This is great news. You have a rest that is responding to the direction you're moving it. The arrow is immediately reacting to that rest position so you know that you've got a projectile that has that has a launch pad that is giving it direction and is not interfering with it and from there honestly i'll normally go out and me personally i will sight in at 20 print out a tape you know go to 60 print out a tape and i'll just go to 100 and start lobbing some bombs what i look for and the first thing that I really check when I'm when I'm deciding whether this arrow is is happy with its counterpart, the bow, is I'll start to I plot the left and right variation of my groups. I, I don't really make adjustments to the rest much. I'll just check lefts and rights. Let's say at a hundred yards, you know, I've got a eight inch variation. Then the next thing that I'll do is I would take that same arrow and go change the point weight about 25 grains up or down, or I would change the pulling weight of my bow about three and a half pounds. And I would then shoot groups again and try to recognize whether that horizontal variance of my impact grew or shrunk. And that initial thing of whether it goes wider or narrower will automatically tell me whether my spine was too stiff or too weak to begin with or possibly just perfectly right and so once you start to realize okay well actually when i put 25 more grains in the point of this arrow my groups actually tighten together well then the next thing you can do is either go to 50 grain point and see if it does it even better or if you have the option go to that next weaker spine back with the original point weight and shoot it down there and see if you get this same tight group. Now for me, that indicator right there seems to always put me at the same exact endpoint at the longer distances as if I go down an entire rat hole of bear shaft testing, because at least for me, I feel like the mass majority of consumers don't have good enough technique with a compound bow to go down a bare shaft testing, because even if you just put tape on the back to add the weight, that is still not the same, right? Yes. 
Um, what I typically do, John, I um, I do paper testing. I, I do the initial setup and the paper testing exactly as you describe. Okay. Uh, and then I'll usually put the bow in my shooting machine and uh, <laughs> of course you do. try that. Because uh, <laughs> yeah. I find a lot of archers, they get the uh, that the bow hand not right. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, and uh, if if something's if something's going wrong, it's often that their their, their bow hand's incorrect. So I'll I'll fix that first. Then once I've got a a uh, behaviour for the paper that I, I like, usually I'll go straight to fifty meters or fifty yards or so and look at the arrow flight. Yeah. And usually I'm looking at it visually. Yeah. Yeah. So what causes um what causes an arrow there's times where an arrow will get out there at about like 40 or 50 yards and sometimes it looks like it almost looks like i don't know if that's the point where maybe it finally corrects like a snake bend that you're not seeing with the naked eye but certainly with lit knocks there's times where you can see almost at a mid distance point that arrow becomes unstable what do you think that's relative to if, if you get a very long if you get the very long distances um as the arrow slows down, the um, you can get some uh, aerodynamic uh, differences where the you know, the, the the type of flow changes along the shaft, for example. And if that happens and it gets near the centre of mass of the arrow, funny things can happen. Uh, so you don't want to go near that. Uh, <laughs> okay, so uh, so that, what that's showing is, so that's pretty much showing there comes a point. I'm trying to to like. You know, I don't want to say dumb it down, but, you know, some of the hunters out there, when they hear X10s, they're like, what the hell are they talking about? Let alone this. So imagine, yeah. you know, you have this arrow that has something on the front of it steering, you know, potentially steering it, something yes. on the back of it, potentially steering it. And yes. at a certain speed, one of those things is the deciding factor of who's got the wheel and who's taking, who's well, driving this baby, right? I'll give you, I'll give you an example, John. Uh, okay. One of, the one of the tests I did in uh, in wind tunnels at university was I suspended an arrow in the wind tunnel uh, and uh, then looked at how it behaved as we changed the the airspeed. Right. In changing the airspeed, what changing was. Uh, where, where the changes in the airflow happened along the shaft. And if those changes got near the, the centre of mass, the arrow behaved you know, wildly. Yeah, uh, yeah. So there are, there are strange things that like that that can happen and you want to stay away from them. Okay. Uh, so now, yeah, I think sometimes when we get, for example, arrows with high drag, yeah, uh, uh, some of those things can happen. And uh, yeah, then, then you can see some of these nasty behaviours. And and by high drag, everybody he's talking about severe fletch angle translates yep. to high drag once it gets to a certain distance. Yes, it can. Okay. Um, but again, depending on how that arrow is flexing and what's in the front of it, sometimes that can yes. be minimized, but sometimes it's also maximized. So uh, I actually the that question came from someone who DM'd me. And he's been out shooting his lit knocks uh, with different broadheads. And there's certain ones where he's like, these things shoot so good, but watch what it does at that distance. And the thing is, the steering of the front of that arrow, once it slows down enough, it is beginning to take control over the back end of that steering. 
And that's when this real shift in like who gets the wheel to the car happens uh, is what is what James is describing. So there's so many factors. Um, So lately you've been doing some studies on uh, on what makes you miss how have you have you made final conclusions are there a few things that Uh, you want to like yeah i've I've, I've come to the conclusion that there are four key things oh uh, sweet four four key reasons why people lose score and uh one of those is uh that they that the lateral angle canting the bow the the bow can't Okay. They, uh, Teach if the that varies too much, if that varies too much, especially at long range, it'll kill you. James, and, have uh, you done that on the shooting machine? Have you done half quarter bubble, half bubble, full bubble? Uh, yes, yes, I at have. ninety meters. Yeah, I have. So yeah, I have. And, only with uh, X tens. Uh, I've done it. Well, I've done all the maths, so it's I can do it applicable to any arrow, basically. Okay. Uh, so. And, and I've, I've, but I've done it. I've done a shooting test with uh, the shooting machine, uh, but but I've also analysed it mathematically. And uh, what it's what it's telling me is that for uh, you know, a good archer, you want to keep that variation less than a quarter of a degree. It's pretty <laughs> Man, tight, dude. <laughs> I, if if I filmed behind like nine thousand eight hundred of the people i was behind and you yeah. and we had a little graph on there showing that they they would crap their pants Pretty high. but see what? here's the thing it's like to me i would way rather have any archer going out and focusing on this test that spending a whole week doing nothing but focusing on their vertical bow alignment at you know not honestly how you present to the target so um one of the things i do james for uh some of my students i have a few students when i'm behind them and i see them start to tip that limb outside of their their essentially outside of their you know their shoulder if i'm looking at them from back from the back if they're getting in the habit of drawing that outside of that silhouette and bringing back i i actually put them right up against a wall And I I just say, listen, you have to shoot all day down the edge of this wall and you have to just learn to raise your bow and draw this thing back without hitting that or hitting that. Yeah. Um, A couple of things I would do. I would do John, uh, like one of the, one of the very best archers uh, that we've ever had is Clint Friedman, as you mentioned. For sure. I've talked to Clint. I've talked to Clint a lot about uh, bow camp variation and uh, he watched the bubble at least as much as he watched the site. Well, I do too. Did you, I don't know if you saw, so I did, um, I, I did a video about a month ago, which for some reason I'd never really brought this out before and I don't know why, but I call it a, I call it a six to nine drill. Um, so I talked about front sight, rear sight orientation and how I do it. So what I told people was when you're aligning your front sight and your rear sight, it's a circle and you don't want to look all the way around that thing because it, you know, it's kind of like, you know, if you start taking your eyes off the end line of the road, you start swerving all over the place. So what I tell people is when I pull up, I get my pin to the target and I check in with my alignment on my peep at six o'clock 
Then I check it at nine o'clock. Then I go back to the pin. Then sure. I go pin bubble, six, nine, pin bubble, back to pin. So sure. I only check in at two points of that 360 degree radius. I check in at six o'clock and I check in at nine. Some people can't sure. check in at three because their cables are in the way. So I literally tell people you have a full pie, but you really only have to use 25% of that pie. But once you've checked in at six and nine, from that point on, your mentality has to just go from pin to bubble to pin, pin yeah. to bubble to pin. Yeah, absolutely. And that's critical. And that's why some of these, honestly, there's some sites on the market right now that everybody's gravitating to. And the level is so far from the pin that I'm telling people this costs you accuracy. Yeah, not good. It not is good. not good. It is not no. good. Now, and the, the other thing I tell them, uh, John, is that um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a natural angle that we hold the bow at. Okay. Uh, and uh, if we hold the bow, if, if we hold the bow at that angle, which might not be vertical, of course, right, uh, we're going to get less variation. But your sight, your sight bar must be vertical. Right. If your sight yep. bar is not vertical, of course, as you change distance, you go off to the side. Yeah. Uh, so you, you don't necessarily set the sight, the sight bar at the same angle of the bow. You set the sight bar so it must be vertical. Right. But you set the bow angle to your natural angle of holding it. Right. And then your variation will be less and you lose less score. Right. Yep. Very good call. And also why here's something you can do for those of you listening. Um, I don't want to say brands, but all I'm going to tell you is this. If you have your front sight and when you move it, if your bubble responds immediately, that is good. Yeah. If your bubble is made of a substance that's so thick where even if there's a one second delay in that movement, that is a huge accuracy killer. Your bubble needs to be made of a material that is liquid and instant in its response to your movement. There cannot be a yeah. delay. Now, I, mean, I mentioned that that's one of the things that I found is one of the, one of the four key areas of score loss. Uh, another one that uh, I find is uh, you know quite a major score loss for archers is that they simply don't set their sights correctly. <laughs> I know. <laughs> that's true too i see that all the time you know yeah. i tell people i'm like hey I, I feel you know you're on 99 not 100 oh no it's yeah. close enough i'm like dude honestly with this with this 610 or 680 green arrow one yard is like a foot uh, feet feet not not one not one foot it is feet it is feet yeah yeah. So, very. Uh, cool. So I, I, uh, I get very fussy with, yeah. Particularly, you know, I'm, I'm mostly watching people shooting target or field. Right. Yeah. That if their if their arrow is not in the middle, change the sight. They just yeah. don't. <laughs> now, yeah. you know, you take one of the world's best archers is uh, Mike Slosser. I've, I've watched him uh, a lot standing behind. Yeah. If, if his arrow didn't hit the center of the X, he changes the sight. Uh, but most archers will, will put up with their groups being off center and uh, just giving away a huge score. Yeah, it's uh, those are two like super obvious ones, super yeah. obvious ones. Um, 
so what's the other are you wanting to give them all away i don't want to like ruin <laughs> your your thing those are two awesome ones those are two such yeah, they're obvious ones. aren't they yeah and and it. honestly even what we talked about with the wrist position at the front um you know yeah. this, this like i bet you two decades ago i wrote an article about your hands and yeah Honestly, the bow hand, in my opinion, is the first and the last thing to determine the path of that arrow. You yes. know, it's the, it's the first thing to that it's the first thing that that bow is collapsing against when the release is fired, and it's the last physical thing that the bow is contacting when that arrow yes. leaves. So yeah. that front well, bow hand is is an absolute, leave. right? Yes, it is. Now the other two I mentioned before that I I've come to the conclusion. Um, now, my game is long-range target, uh, right. and it's uh, dealing with wind drift. Uh, you're not dealing with wind drift perfectly. And so what that means is that's basically equipment optimization. That's using, that's op that's minimising the wind drift of arrows. That's using skinny arrows with uh, a heavier mass. Uh, yeah. Know, that's using an yeah. X10 with a, a 120 20, 20 grains or so. So let me and, bring this uh, up. Um, well, I don't want to change your subject but remind me about micro diameter and knocks that's the sure. before i forget that's what i wanted to talk to you about too well let's do that now john oh okay okay so so when it comes to like hunting shafts for sure a smaller diameter is going to help with penetration yes. it's definitely going to help with ballistics downrange wind drift um yes, yes it will so for me the reason I'm not in a four millimeter arrow shaft. There's actually two reasons. Both of the reasons I'm not in a four millimeter arrow shaft from a hunting point of view is mainly because of what's happening on both ends. I'm not a big outsert person um, just because for alignment, I've dealt with that all the way back to like the beam and diva C's and things like that. Yes. But also, um, they're just not great on bag targets. And when I travel and go to an archery club, I'm at the mercy of what every club has for their targets. And sometimes having outserts and especially losing an outsert in a target pretty much ruins that target for life. Um, yes. So I don't particularly like them for that reason. But the other reason comes down to I really, really like lit knocks. Um, I feel like from a hunting point of view, one of the most ethical things you can do is be able to totally confirm impact point on that animal before you attempt your tracking. And I feel like a lighted knock can help in recovery. You know, if it's right at last light and you have to go around, you can find your arrow that's laying on the ground immediately. You're within the realm of blood. I think there's a lot of great things, but in saying that with a lot of the lit, with all the lit knocks that I found a, a lit knock because of how they're comprised, they are not as stiff as factory knocks that are completely solid. And on the four millimeter specifically, if you grab a lit knock on a four mil millimeter and flex this, it has a lot of movement and it's the actual knock itself being very very teeny not much plastic meat around it at all and it's long and so if you can bend that up and down 
you have good. completely changed the yes. tune of this arrow. Yeah, it's not um, good. And, and not in a good way. I mean, no. so a, a flexible knock to a doctor in, in aerodynamics. What does what does that uh, spell no, out no for you? Um, I've done a lot of a lot of testing of knocks because uh, they they matter a, a great deal. Yeah, and uh, what it, what it, what all my testing has shown is that the from the back of the arrow, you want a short distance to the the knock groove. Yep. Uh, get, get straight back to the, uh, what you meant it is you know, flex and how well the knocks made mm-hmm. uh, and uh, some knocks are well like in the grip test grip testing with um, shooting machine with different knocks some will have groups twice the size of others yeah uh, there are big 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 differences <laughs> yeah uh, you can take a bow shoot like, like this and then just next thing you know it's just splatter so, and shotgun patterns just what, from it, the like, what it tells me is, is is the distance from the knock groove back to the, the, the rear of the shaft you want to have, or or to a, the back of a pin, for example, you want to have that distance very short. Right. Which is why, like, you know, on our target arrows, uh, you know, these little pin knock systems right here, you have a yep. very robust peg coming out of the shaft yep. that's then immediately to the knock groove. So you're That's really right. minimizing your your uh, your option to fl- to flex. That's right. Now what I've uh, what I found is I, yeah, for example, one of one of the asses I coach is Pat Coglin. Uh, yeah, yeah. He, he was number two at one stage. Yeah. At one stage, uh, we we got every every uh, brand of knocks that we that Pat could lay his hands on, and, and I tested all of them. And uh, I would be fussy as to which ones I used because some are much <laughs> much better than others. Yeah, I know, man. I know, and I try to I try to tell people that there's there's some very good ones out, and honestly, there's some good brands that have multiple yes, designs, and some designs yes. aren't as good as what the company is because of that design. Uh, yeah, absolutely, John. I think we're talking about the same place. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> although I did I did find that. Um, at times with X10s, it seems like with X10s, you can either be just right or you can be too stiff or too weak real fast. Yeah. And um, there was a certain knock that I think you and I are talking about the same company, but they actually made one that was pretty soft. And I needed, if I put that knock in the arrow that was reacting a little bit too stiff the flex of the knock was like just enough to where it grouped so i i shot that not i know we're talking about the same yeah. play yeah, one of the one of the things i've uh, i've come to the conclusion is that in choosing my 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 gear there i would i would test it with shooting machine yeah i know <laughs> well I, bro- I broke mine out it's right over there i figured I figured yeah. if what I naturally come out and say to everybody in, in this whole arrow world right now, if what I'm doing, like I tell people, I'm like, listen, I have a, I have a hunting bow and I'm shooting yeah. for you guys at 70 and, and 70 meters today. I did a hundred. So I did 90 meters. I'm like, listen, you know, this is as real as it gets. Can I put this yeah. in the shooting machine and show you? Yes. But there's also like 
in order to save us a hundred times more time, I can do it. There's not a lot of people that can, but if I uh, make you got, a bad you got, shot, you got a you got a nice advantage there, John, and that you're a good enough archer that you can you can do tests just just shooting. Yeah, and some some of us can't do that. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> it's it's a difference between hey, here's how it really affects you with a mechanical error, yeah. or yes, I can put it in a shooting machine as long as there's no wind variation, as long as I'm sure. using plunger. These are going to shoot in the same spot, so. Sure. Uh, I've got two more topics I'm curious on. So one of the topics is uh, there's a lot of people out here that are convincing people to like float their arrows, find high spine, weigh every single arrow. And honestly, what I'm trying to tell people is if you buy a match grade arrow, the Honestly, 99% of the population is not going to be able to understand the difference of what this arrow can do downrange. Now, certainly, well, there's... On the, Go ahead. On, on the weighing arrows, um, I've, I've, my, one of my published papers, I've, I've, I've analysed that. And uh, if you look at the uh, you know, real top archer, uh, what, what do they have to do? No, you're looking at world class archer. What do they have to do? And uh, what I would do there is I'd you know, say say you've got a target archer put, using say X tens. Yeah. Uh, I would get the X tens. I would I would make them up, fletch them, not put the points in. I'd weigh them and I'd put the I'd weigh the points and I'd put the heaviest point with the lightest shaft, etc. And that will be accurate enough. You don't yeah. need to do more than that. Yeah. You don't need to you don't need to go to the extremes. The machines now to so here's the thing: if you're buying a match grade arrow. They are doing that for you. They are yes, doing they are. that for you. There might be the occasional arrow where what I tell people is the best thing you can do is just when you fletch up your, and honestly, if you buy this arrow right here from us, that's made this way, every one that I shoot, I go and grab out of the bucket at work. I don't do any of this stuff. I promise right. you what I'm hunting with and everything. That's what I do. These were all like R and D protocols and, and part yes. of, Easton's ISO freaking protocols for their MRP. The, these are protocols that have to be in place. And what matters to yeah. me the most is spine consistency. Spine consistency is definitely, is definitely important, but when you're within yes, plus or minus one thousands for straightness and yes. for weight, yes. people Good enough. go out there Good enough. and get 20 more minutes of practice in. And, I agree, John. Uh, better no, better if, to do the practice than to fiddle around yeah. with. And if number two gets wild, and every time you shoot number two, it's left of the group, turn that knock 90 degrees, shoot it again, yes. see if it brings it back in the middle. You know what? If for some reason, after you've done that three times, if number two always still goes left, then Mark that out. thing with a, you know, I've got arrows that have question mark, question mark on it. Normally out of three or four dozen, I might have one that I question whether yes. it's me or if it's just by chance. But yes. honestly, like that, these, these companies are making, if you're buying their premium arrows, they're so freaking good. We're not they are, they, making wooden arrows they, anymore. They are actually, they are actually good enough. You don't, you don't need to go to the extremes. Right. And, and like, uh, 
So then uh, the last thing I was going to tell you, and this is, this is one of the things, if I were to add one of the things that make people miss or inaccurate, the one thing that I think people don't, the people that are thinking about arrows and being picky about arrows, the one thing that you do not spend enough time on that you should is knock fit to the serving. Yes, I agree. This, this connection, if anyone's going to have an argument on what it should be, that connection is more critical to groups than anything because depending on your bow's natural string tension, depending if you've backed your limbs out five turns or 10 terms, turns, or honestly, the natural geometry of that bow if that knock is spreading apart to snap on and it's building a flat rudder on your serving, that yeah, arrow is so unpredictable compared to one yes. that just lightly pops on and freely yes. spins within the throat of the knock. Yes, yes, I agree, John. Matters so I would tell people, if you're going to be fanatical about your arrows, you would be so much better off taking this brand new bowstring that you bought and got it sent to your house out of a package and checking how that thing fits that arrow, that fit right there is way more critical to accuracy than you putting your arrows in a bathtub and floating I, on uh, or, or I absolutely points. agree. Absolutely. Absolutely agree, John. I, I, I don't probably, you know, bathtubs and things. I just don't go near them. <laughs> so you told me about paper tuning for just, and then, and then you go to the shooting machine for your tuning process. Yes. yes. Um, with a compound bow, see with a compound, I just have like kind of lost my ability to keep wasting time with bear shaft tuning because I feel like the arrow charts have gotten so much better that yes. you're within a very small window of this arrow being responsive to you. So now three, three and a half pounds of pull weight is almost equal to a spine to changing yes. an arrow one spine. So if you change your poundage up three and a half pounds or down three and a half pounds and instantly see how that arrow responds, you're going to know whether your arrow was too stiff and you had to lower weight in order to get it to come together or Maybe it was, or sorry, if it was too stiff and all of a sudden you added weight and that thing just sucked together, well, now you know you need a little bit weaker spine if at your ideal weight. Or if you had to lower weight, you know, okay, well, I was actually too weak. And by lowering the weight, I let that arrow stiffen up a little bit. Now I got the results I want. So maybe what I need to do is either lower my poundage, lower my point weight. Maybe I should go to that stiffer spine. Like there's, now you, now you know your direction. Now, yes. when I learned to recurve a hundred percent, like the type of string material you're using, how fast that thing came off your fingers, your plunger, yes. your plunger, uh, stiffness, that stuff started to factor into bear shaft tuning really fast. But for a compound yes. that has a completely, you know, yes. opposite paradox, I just yes. feel like if people Ooh. pay attention to the paper pay attention to groups downrange. And then honestly, the last thing that I'll do, if I ever feel like for some reason, my site isn't tracking is I'll maybe do a slight French tune or a walk back tuning method 
to make sure my shorter distances and my longer distances are all bang on with with my yeah. sight. Yeah, I like I say recurve, recurve. I definitely go to bare shaft, but not mm. for compound. Uh, right, compound. I'm more interested in what's the arrow flight look like. Yeah. So yeah, I'm because it's so much faster I, too. I like to get out at you know fifty meters or so and stand behind and 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 watch to see what the arrow's doing. Right. Yeah. Well. That's why we're out on this call because I was standing behind a lot of people watching their arrows past 50 meters and I wasn't super thrilled about what I was seeing. And then when yeah. I'd go pull the arrow out of the target, as soon as I saw the front of it, I'm like, oh no, they're drinking the Kool-Aid and they're more worried about, they're more worried about an abbreviation FOC than they are about accuracy and grouping yeah. and arrows in the middle of the target and knowing that they're going to do that so this has cool. been so refreshing james i'm i'm so uh glad to connect with you again and i hope we see each other sometime here soon yeah, yeah. i need to get yeah, you over to a total archery challenge i think you would just absolutely love it love seeing the atmosphere yeah. it would it would be so refreshing for you yep very cool. Well, yeah, thanks, James. I appreciate it. Hey, where can I, where can people find you? Uh, you know, if if they need to if they need to find James Park and some of your uh, Doctor James Park. I apologize. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's right. Uh, <laughs> like, if they want to find any of my papers, uh, they'll always they can always do a, a, a search on Google Scholar and look under J L Park Archery, and they'll find all of them. There it is. Okay, people, this is a friend of mine for 20 years, and he's literally made a life out of this. I have too, but I just don't know the why. I just know what it does on a piece of paper when it hits it, puts a hole. I want all my holes in the same spot. Um, so that's that's how I figured it out. I figured it out the uh, the shooting way. He figured it out the scientific the way with with ridiculous math equations a shooting machine and I still do not know how you fixed a camera's shutter to the exact timing of a bow to be able to get pictures of arrow flight in exact moments of time. You're a freaking genius. Yeah, good fun. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Uh, and maybe I'll post that. So James got a picture for me of an arrow going through the center of an egg yolk. <laughs> <laughs> how the heck you did that? I have no idea. But that was awesome. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, James. I, I appreciate you. it. Knock on everybody. Be sure to check out knockonarchery.com for our full line of custom designed products, as well as free in-depth education and bow hunting entertainment to help you shoot at your best.